So here we are. This is question and answers uh, with a pastor. So I've got a bunch, so I'm going to get right to it. And uh, uh, we'll see how far I get. I'm not sure I'm going to get through all of these because there's quite a few of them. So uh, we have some that have come in online, some that come in via, a lot have come in via email. Uh, and put out a blurb on the internet, and it seemed to generate quite a bit of activity this time. So thank you, Ann. Everybody say thank you, Ann. All right, so here are some here are some questions from social media. There's actually, I guess, just came in just before the service. Here's one: How do you fight temptation if it is currently not possible to remove it from your life? Well, you know, we have three enemies in the life of a believer, according of summation of the New Testament: the world, which is the influences of culture, the flesh, which is your personal your personal stuff you deal with and things you've allowed in your life since you've been born to this time, habits you've created, we call that the world, the flesh, and then the devil, the enemy from without, uh, taunts us and tempts us. So the question, how do you fight temptation if it's currently not possible to remove it from your life? Now, uh, you know, that brings up all kinds of ideas in my mind. A lot of things I can remove from my life. You know, if I was an alcoholic, Jesus set me free from alcohol, I can remove that temptation by, by not walking into the, into the um, beverage store. How many hear me? Or, or, not going, uh, or not going down that aisle in the grocery store. How many hear that? Or, or choosing, if somebody asks me if I want to drink, if I'm at a restaurant, just say, I don't drink. How many know that curbs the tendency and temptation in a big way? Is that correct? Or, or if you have friends who drink with their meal, you may choose not to participate in that meal if it tempts you that far. There are a lot of things. How many know that we can do? And uh, so if you're tempted in whatever way, if, you, if it's sexual temptation, don't look at pornography. Watch what you think about. Keep your eyes clean. Keep your ears clean. For me, generally across the board, if you'll sp- spend time with God in his word every day and spend time in prayer and say, God, I need you to help me and keep, keep me in the moment temptation shows up in your life. Say, God, that's real. My flesh wants to do that. My mind wants to go there. My eyes want to go there. You know, I've got a desire for what I used to. I don't want that. Help me not to want it in Jesus' name. Do you know that goes a long way towards curbing tendencies? So second question, how do you be friends with a person that holds racist ideals? Now, uh, you know, so, so obviously you've got a friend here and they're saying a, a lot of things. Maybe they're talking on social media and they're talking about racial things and it's a big issue in our nation right now. It's come to the forefront and uh, they have racist ideals. That is, they pit one ethnicity against another and they're making comments and suggestions and such uh, and you say you're friends with them well you know if I have a person like that in my life I can I can agree to disagree and I can disagree without being disagreeable yes or no so you know then you got people who are overbearing and they and they push you what do you think about that how do you feel about that well you know I, I can say look I love you and the Lord and I appreciate you. Or maybe they're not a believer, it's just a friend. Look, I've been knowing you for X period of time and I think you're a great friend, but this is where, this is what I feel about this particular issue. If the other person gets agitated, you can say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but these are my thoughts and these are my ideals about this. And, and I understand we may disagree on that, but you know, just, just think about what I'm saying because these are some things that I feel about the issues and this is why. Uh, you know, friendship has to do with commonality, and we're friends with people who, uh, you know, birds of a feather flock together, as the adage goes. So we, we tend to befriend people who have, 
we have similarities with. Obviously, you're not going to be similar about everything. But if it comes to the point that a person has uh, makes racist statements and says, says things and makes innuendos about people, you know, that may be in the room or people that you know. You know, at some point in my life, I've had people that did not, not exactly racial comments, but other things. And, you know, I tried to befriend them and as long as I could. In fact, when I first came to the Lord, I had a lot of friends that, you know, I changed so much. My ideals changed. What I thought about life changed so much that for some, I had to make a decision I can see that they're not choosing to change and they're not choosing to accept the changes in my life because they're remembering the old me and the old me that talked this way and acted this certain way. So I had to make a choice that even though I cared about that person, I would pray for them, but I limited my, I had to begin to limit the time of involvement in that person's life. And you may have those kind of people in your life too. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, is very clear that we become like the people we hang around. And even though you have good morals and good ideals, you hang around the wrong people long enough. If you don't say anything, and they're saying a lot of things that you know are wrong and you don't rebut that in some kind way, then you'll receive that into your own life and become that. That's the tendency. That is the tendency. You want to be careful with that. Number three, here's a third question from this person. Now, this is good. Let's see. Oh, this is a good question. Why do we still follow some Jewish rules and not others? For example, this came from social media. For example, we still follow the having sex with someone in the same gender is sin, Leviticus 18, verse 22. And we don't follow, but we don't follow, don't eat pork or, you know, other things that we call unclean animals. Uh, in, in Leviticus 11, the Bible says it's unclean. Or don't have sex with a woman on her period. That's what they wrote right here. But I'm not 100% sure on that one. But why do we do that? So why do we follow some Jewish regulations and not other Jewish regulations? I think that's a fair question, don't you? And, and you know, the Bible is, is hard. Let me just make a, 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 a across-the-board comment. The Bible is a very difficult book to mentally understand without the Holy Spirit interpreting the meaning by what, by what he wrote. How many hear what I just said? In fact, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man, uh, 2.14, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. That is, the natural man not influenced by the Holy Spirit doesn't understand spiritual values. He said they're foolishness to him. Neither can he discern or understand them because they're spiritually understood. It takes the Holy Spirit to interpret the word. And that's why intellectually, you know, if all you do is study the Bible intellectually, you can get really dry really fast and then come across things that, that seem to contradict one another. The Bible, its original languages, never contradicts itself. But you've got to know the author of the book and ask him to reveal it to you because the Bible was written by, by people prompted by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? So, so what about these regulations? Understand this, in the Old Testament, there were, there were three classifications of law. Now, this would be interesting, and this will help you if you're a believer and, and people ask you these kinds of questions. There were the Ten Commandments, the, um, and, and the Ten Commandments are the law, is what the Old Testament calls the law and the New Testament calls the law. It's talking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Hebrew word there is the mitzvah. And then secondly, there are the statutes. And those are ordinances. The Hebrew word is hok, H-O-Q. And then there are rules or case laws. And this is mishvat in the Hebrew 
And these are just everyday civil law. So you got the law, the statutes, and then rules or case law. The only ones that apply to the whole world are the Ten Commandments. Don't forget in Exodus 19, Moses went on top of Mount Sinai, met with God. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was supernaturally sustained by the power of God. And, uh, and, and God gave him the Ten Commandments and God wrote them with his finger on a tablet of stone. Moses came down, got upset, broke the tablets because the Israelites were in sin, had to go back up, and God wrote another, another set of them. Those were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, guess what? The, the statutes and the case laws or the rules, they were not placed in the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ten Commandments were. So the, the Ten Commandments are the laws of God that have to do with his person, with his character, and what he wants us to be as people. If you don't know what the Ten Commandments are, go to Exodus chapter 20. They're, they're, they're clearly spoken there in fair detail. Here's a summarization. The first ten command of the Ten Commands, no other gods before me. Number two, don't, don't erect any idols or, and worship them. Number three, don't take God's name in a vain way. That's why you, I don't even think you should say, oh my God. I think that's using God's name in a vain way. Sometimes I'll slip up and do that, say, God, I repent. How many hear me? Uh, number three, number uh, four, remember the Sabbath. Jesus has become our Sabbath rest in the New Testament, but he said there's a day of rest for the people of God. Number five, honor your parents. Number six, do not murder. Premeditated murder is, is not allowed by God. He said, he said, no murder. Number seven, no adultery. That is the only sex that God smiles at is between a, a monogamous, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman in a, in a, in a classification he called in Genesis 2.24 the for, for the first time, marriage. Any kind of sex out that doesn't fit that design to God is sinful. Numbers eight, do not steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. Number nine, do not lie. And that is the badge of the 21st century is deception. Number 10, don't covet somebody else's stuff. It's very clear. Those are the 10 moral laws of God. And they, uh, and they, and they cover, I don't care, every ethnicity, every nation, Every continent, God gave them to the Jewish race. If you'll follow those 10 laws of conduct, even a person that doesn't know the Lord, it'll help that, that culture be a better culture. So those are the laws from the Old Testament. The other laws, the, um, the uh, statutes and the rules, the ordinances and case laws, those have been abrogated or set aside by the blood of Jesus and by his sacrifices. And those other two sets of laws, not the Ten Commandments, but the other two, uh, they were only for Israel as they lived in the land of Canaan in the Middle East. They were not for other nations. They were solely for the Israelites. And so people get confused when they read all of those ordinances, particularly through the book of Leviticus. Why? Well, that's the reason why. But the Ten Commandments, they're the moral laws of God. And one thing that we forget in the 21st century is that God is a holy God. 
God is love, and you hear people say that, uh, believer and unbeliever all over the place. Now, well, God loves everybody. Well, he does. But the other thing that we don't often hear is that God is not only love, but he's also holy. And because God is holy, there are certain things that if you do them in your life repetitiously without repentance, he has to withdraw his presence, withdraw who he is. And then when you die and your spirit separates from your body, you will not be allowed to go through the pearly gates of heaven and enter into that blissful place because nothing unhallowed or unholy can go through those gates. The only way a fallen human being can go is through the blood of Jesus by repentance from sin and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the way, the truth, the life, that he died for us. He, went, he paid the penalty for our sin. We're, our sins have been judiciously absolved by his blood. And then Jesus was raised from the dead for a number of reasons. One main reason is to let us know now we can have relationship with God because of him. Isn't that good news? So that's the gospel in a nutshell. So there's that third question. Y'all good? Well, let's see. Here's another one. Uh, let's see. I wanted to ask about Jesus' ministry of delivering believers from demons or casting out demons, a very prominent part of his earthly ministry that is evident all through the gospels and which he trained his disciples and commissioned them to do. Mark 16, 16 15 through 18, the great commission uh, given at the time of Jesus' ascension, he states that the number one sign for believers is that in his name they would cast out demons and goes on from there. So my question is, why do you think that we are largely not seeing this in our churches today or offering it as a ministry outreach, for example? Uh, is just as much a part of the signs ministry of Jesus as laying on of hands or on uh, laying hands on the sick or speaking in tongues in accordance with the scriptures, yet we don't hear about it much or see it uh, happening, really? So they ask, why don't we see and hear all about demonic forces? Uh, I just, it's really interesting, got that question, I just read an article last week, I think, uh, in my personal time, and it was talking about first century uh, uh, Middle Easterners, and that's where the Bible, that's the setting for the Bible. And um, they said that, that everyone, whether they were Jew or Gentile, the belief system of the, of the culture in Bible lands in Bible days 2,000 years ago was that the spirit world was very real. And their belief system said that demon spirits, spirits you can't see from the netherworld, influence human life. That was as common as anything in our culture is common to us, to them in that culture in the first century. And so they had soothsayers and all kinds of people that said they could rid you of your habits, your problems, your deficiencies come and we'll re rid you of these evil forces that are, are hindering your life. And so it was common. So in Jesus' ministry, it, there was, it, it, it was such a common belief system that often the demon spirits would manifest in front of him. In Western culture, we have different kinds of thinking. Western culture, the thought of, of or up to this point, the thought of Western culture has been more scientific than feeling oriented. We're more rational than people from the Eastern, uh, from Eastern cultures, for instance, in Bible lands. And so for that reason, you know, if, I, if I'm to get up as pastor and say, you can be delivered of devils, People are going to think I'm absolutely cuckoo because our culture doesn't think that way. Well, does that mean then that demon forces are not real and that we don't deal with them just as much as people did in Bible days? No, we deal with them maybe even more than they did then. It's just not as apparent. 
uh, because our culture, by and large, and it's not, it's not drilled into us in our educational systems, that there is a spiritual world that's just as real as the natural world. You usually only hear about that in churches. And now we have mysticism that's taking hold in certain parts of our culture and uh, on the negative side of spiritual things. So again, um, you know, I personally have ministered deliverance quite a bit in my personal time, in my personal life, when people come to the altar uh, I've laid hands on people often. I command demon forces to leave in Jesus' name, come out in Jesus' name. A lot of people think you do, do, need to do this with a lot of perk, pomp and circumstance and fanfare. That's not necessarily true. They come out with a word of command. And so often in my personal life, I've often mentioned when I go to other countries, I've got stories that I sit here the rest of the night and tell you of stories where I wasn't looking for it. I'm not looking for a devil, but you know, they just manifest sometimes. And in other lands where they're aware of the spirit world, for I don't know, for whatever reason, they manifest. I know in Africa, I've been to Africa a lot, been to India a lot. And you know, they got 300 million gods in India. And then they're animists by and large in many parts of Africa still today. And they believe in the spirit realm. When we start ministering there, while we're preaching, people will scream out. I mean, scream out and, and roll on the ground. And if they did that here, well, you go get the EMS. They must be having some kind of a epilepsy, right? Is it true? They so said that, you know, whatever. But I'm just saying it's just as real here as it is there. And I've, I've ministered deliverance in both worlds and both realms. So... So let me also say that, um, you know, people uh, along uh, with this vein of thinking can think that, well, if you're really spiritual, you're going to be looking for devils all the time and you need to do this where everybody can see it. Well, if you're wise, you know, be as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. You know, two-thirds of the people probably wouldn't listen if I started casting out devils and you saw the manifestations that I've seen, to use my South Carolina colloquialisms, it would scare the heebie-jeebies out of you. It's weird. And I have to tell them, stop manifesting, shut up, and come out. Lastly on this subject, uh, when I was a young believer, I was in my early 20s, was going to a second Bible school. I was married to my wife. We were uh, living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I frequented Kenneth Hagin's meetings once I graduated from his school. And he said this very frequently in his meetings dealing with the demonic realm. He said, it's not always necessary to personally minister deliverance by laying hands on someone and commanding a demon spirit to leave them. He said, here's what you'll find out. Jesus said, if I by the spirit of God cast out devils, two things you need to know about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes number one, you know, he manifests and you can minister to a person personally. Other times, however, the Holy Spirit and the word go hand in hand. And Kenneth Hagin, and I never forgot this, he said it's most often not even necessary to lay hands on and have a quote-unquote deliverance session. If you'll get a person to stay under the teaching of the word and put into practice what they hear, when you change your thought patterns and change your motivations and change what you value, you leave very little for demon spirits to hold on to in your life, and they just leave. Isn't that good? Anyway, I'll just leave that right there. Is that good? Here's another question. Uh, we are told God never changes what he says. Does, 
and what he says doesn't change. Exodus 32 tells, uh, uh, tells us that God told Moses he was going to destroy the Israelites because of their actions with the golden calf. So Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, came back down. And, you know, um, <clears throat> they had gotten their gold rings and stuff together and, and made a, go- a gold calf out of it. And they were worshiping the thing. And it upset him. And God told Moses he was going to destroy the Israelites because of their actions with a golden calf. So Moses talked him out of it. Verse 14, the person says, tells us God changed his mind and didn't destroy them. Did he really change his mind? I think the King James Version, uh, some modern versions say he changed his mind. Other, other versions say he relented. If you look at the Hebrew of that, God had compassion. Moses literally interceded, stood between the sinner and God the sinful Israelites and God. And and God's holiness was so abruptly violated that he could no longer fellowship with his people. And and because of that, they would have been destroyed by their enemies if God God had had to let them have their way and and not stopped and, and, and had Moses not interceded on their behalf, you know, judgment would have fallen. But because Moses talked to God, his compassion came in. And it's not that he, not that he changed. No, it appealed to his mercy. It appealed to Moses' prayer. Appealed to his grace, and God, God said, "Wait, don't let the judgment happen." Later on, the end of the chapter, they were judged to some degree, but for the moment, God said, "Wait, they're not going to be obliterated. Don't let it happen." because somebody interceded for them. It just shows you again the heart of God. Even though he is holy and pure, he loves you to pieces. And if somebody will intercede for you, it's not that he changes. It's not that he changes his character. God never changed his character in this. But what was about to happen to them because of their choices was changed because God allowed mercy instead of judgment. Isn't that good news? Anyway, here's another one. Let's see what this one is. Uh, Ah, the Bible tells us to be aware of false prophets and teachers. In some cases, Paul himself warns uh, some churches to be aware of specifically named people uh, who were not preaching the true gospel. And, uh, and that, of course, that's written in the New Testament, sure. I think we have all seen or heard of a pastor or teacher preach things that are unbiblical. Some believers have taken to calling these pastors out publicly for leading sheep astray with their biblically erroneous teaching. Is that how we should address the issues of false teachers? If not, how do we address the wrong teaching that is being spread to and accepted by some members of the body of Christ? Should we avoid uh, rebuke and call them out? So I think the question is, if you know somebody's teaching false doctrine, do you call their name to your friends and say, don't be messing with that person. They're preaching false doctrine. Here's what I do. And now, you know, there's a lot of things that are on the edge and a lot of things that people say that you can't find scripture for. Certainly today, you can read lots of books, more books now than have ever been written in the, in the history of the world. So you can find anything about anything written by a believer, written by a pastor, written by a person in ministry. So what you say, pastor, what do you do? Again, when somebody that you know is, is saying something that's wrong, well, you can, you can love the person, but not agree with the things they're doing. 
And that's what I choose to do. Uh, I may say, now, so-and-so, and I've done that before. I've said, so-and-so has taught this. While I appreciate so-and-so and love them and appreciate that they want to do something for God and that God uses them, you know, to minister to people in other ways, I disagree with these particular statements they have made, and I think their statements are absolutely wrong. And uh, they're, see, the, see, that's different than denigrating the person's character. So you don't want to participate in character assassination when you disagree with someone. And that's, that's, what, where, that's where I draw the line for me. And uh, so you just want to be really, really careful. Uh, one person that does this probably better than anybody I know is, is uh, Dr. Michael Brown. And he's in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he's got a program, Ask Dr. Brown. In fact, I, I'm a, I have a, a subscribed to his podcast and I listen to his podcast some. But I really appreciate him because, uh, you know, apologetics is his forte and he loves to talk to somebody that disagrees with him. He can make them feel so loved and cared for while at the same time he vehemently disagrees with what they say and what they believe. So we need to learn how to do that. And I would say we don't do that very well. Would you agree? Anyway. Oh, here's one. This is a, well, here we go. So this one came in. This is anonymous. Um, so these are statements a person made. And I'm just going to, let's see, should I read these? I'm going to read these statements. And then I want to make some comments about, and I want to formulate what these statements say to me as a pastor. Are we a family? We speak occasionally that we are. However, we don't do things that show we are a family. Uh, some... Um, Seems as if everything that brings members together, we've abandoned. We're not doing things that really make us a family, this person seems to say. Whose birthdays and anniversaries are mentioned? Mine. You're talking to me. Whose, addition, whose additions to family are mentioned is shown on the screen? Mine. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Uh, when something different's being added or started uh, in the church, do we have a family meeting? They say we start programs without getting everybody's assent. That is true. Um, and then to be a family, everyone in the family must feel as if they're part of the family. On the first Sundays, why not recognize everyone who has a birthday slash anniversary for that month? So here's the clear, simple answer to these things. I appreciate the person who asked that. I'm sure their heart is good. I believe the best of everybody. But when I look at that, let me tell you, I'm just going to be really plain. That is small church thinking. And when you think of the dynamics of crowd size, there's one thing to have 50 people. It's another thing to have 100 people. But when you have hundreds like we have, do you realize how long it would take to mention every baby that's born, every brother, brother or sister that dies, every parent of every church member that dies, every birthday, every anniversary. Do you realize how long that would take? Do you know what would happen in the 21st century if we're seeking to reach our culture for Jesus and we take, how long would that take? A long time every Sunday. We would lose people. My heart is to reach people. You know, if our church was smaller, you can engage in these kinds of activities. But when your church grows, just the dynamics of, of, uh, of uh, crowd size and how you deal with conversations has to change. That's the reason we have small groups. Um, denominational churches for years have had Sunday school classes, and that's where people gang together. Now it's become popularized 
to have small groups. And, you know, a larger church, we need small groups that meet together. That's where you recognize anniversaries, babies that are being born, birthdays, and other things, deaths in the family, yada, yada. And again, here, if there's somebody prominent that everybody knows, we'll mention something. But if it's someone that only a handful of people knows, then, then just, just by the nature of the numbers of people that we deal with, we can't mention that. How many understand that? If you've got any more questions about that, come and see me. you just got to understand those things as a church grows. When I came here, we had 49 voting members in 1994. Now we've got over 700, and, uh, you know, and we're growing. And we've got a large crowd online now. So I, I can't do things the way I did 26 years ago now. I would not be effective. So anyway, I hope that answers that question. Here's another one. Uh, how can women stand up to sexual harassment in the workplace? It recently happened to a young lady who just entered the workforce. And when she stood up and said no, it became a hostile work environment. So uh, then praise report, she left the job. God blessed her with another job in a different environment. So the question is again, how can uh, women stand up to sexual harassment in the workplace? Uh, nobody should put up with that. I'm the father of three daughters and, uh, and I have a son. And, and of course I have a wife and, and I would be incensed if someone did that to anybody that's kin to me. And uh, so I tell, when anything like that happens, confront it immediately. If you sit silently, silence is permission. I mean, that's, and that's why how, you know, listen, I've been in ministry since 1981. Do you have any idea what kinds of things people have said to me? I've had women come up to me and say certain things. And you know what I've said? Don't you ever, Say that to me again. That is out of order. That's your flesh. I'm a married man. That should never come out of your mouth. I won't even do the justice of saying what they said. You know, and you know what that does? It keeps me clean. You hear me? Because I love my wife, but I love Jesus more. How many hear me? So if you're sexually harassed, like Barney Five said, nip it in the bud. You know what I'm saying? And then go to management, make a note. You should write it down, put the date, the time, exactly what happened because the badge of the human race is deceit and people won't own their sin. Write down when it happened, what was said, what you said, how you reacted, what took place right after that, where it was in the building. Make a note of it. And then go to, if you need to, if the person ever does it again, yeah, I mean, it's up to you. Maybe then, even then, go to, go to your next level of management. Say, I need you to be aware of what happened to me. You say, but I'm afraid I'll lose my job. Well, if the people in your work environment won't protect the environment of the workers, it may, it may be that you need to find another, another God, job. And God will give you another one. How many hear me? So uh, enough said about that. I could get right uh, wrinkled up about it. I get kind of. Ooh, I get moved by that one. Anyway, is that good? Is that enough? Uh, how does the church combat division in the church among believers? Well, the first thing I do is pray. You know, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10, um, Paul encouraged the uh, Corinthian believers that they would all speak the same thing. There would be no divisions among them, that, but they would be joined together in what they say and in what they believe. 
I pray that over our church. And I command demon forces. See, I do all this privately. I command demon spirits that would, that would, uh, that would cause an insurrection of disagreements among people to stop in Jesus' name. If, if I find that a person's trying to spread, spread gossip or slander, I go to them. I have my staff team confront that. We don't allow gossip in our leadership. We don't allow gossip in our, in our offices. And if we hear someone gossiping on our dream team, we go right to them. What is gossip? When you say something uh, defaming about someone in their absence, that is gossip. And it's gossip if you say it, and it's gossip if you listen to it. You're also participating. I don't allow that. Nip it. How many hear me? So from us here, uh, how do we combat division? Well, we create a sense of unity. That is, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Uh, the next, it looks like the next series that I'm starting, I got one more lesson on hearing the voice of God in the details of life. My next series, I'm gonna go into the most minute detail possible on what it means to walk or live every day in the love of God and treat each other the way God wants you to treat them. We'll go into detail. It will ream us out. It's gonna be good. But you teach people to walk in love and you act it yourself. And that's how you promote unity in the family of God. And if somebody's divisive, I call them aside. I say, you know, let's talk what's going on. Why is this being said? What are you thinking? What has happened to you? I give them the benefit of the doubt and then uh, encourage them. Well, these kinds of things are probably not best spoken. In fact, not prob- they're not best spoken in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere where others can hear. If, you've got a, got, if you're just grundled about something, go to leadership. If you're upset with the church, come to me. Come to one of my staff team. Go see Mira. Go see one of our, our staff team members. Uh, uh, or go to a person directly if you've got something that you're challenged with. How many know that's how you create unity among your body of believers? Anyway, here's another one. Everybody okay? Y'all quiet tonight. Here we are. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. Uh, do you believe? Uh, do you believe the behemoth and the leviathan are real monsters, or just a hippopotamus and a crocodile? <laughs> this is from the book of Job. It's actually from the book of Job, chapters forty and forty-one. It mentions these huge creatures. And uh, so they're asking, are they real? Are they really only the hippopotamus and crocodile? Or are they symbolic of nations? Or is there possibly the actual monstrous form of these beasts that may someday come into existence? That is an overworked imagination right there. So, you know, if you go read, if you go read the context, honestly, the context is there's these huge creatures and there's always, and what he was saying in context, Job, there's always something out there more powerful than you. The hippo is bigger than you are. The crocodile is bigger than you are. And you listen to commentators. It's probably not talking about, you know, mystical creatures that one day may burst into existence. It's talking about things that actually exist, whether it's a buffalo or a rhinoceros or a a whale or a shark or uh, some sea monster of some kind in the deep blue sea. So anyway, enough of that one. Uh, Here's a good question, however. What will the millennium be like? 
Uh, will it be worship millennium? There's a 1,000 year rule of Jesus after he comes back in his second coming. We will have glorified bodies. So the question is during that time, will it be all worship? Will we uh, have responsibilities? Will we have to eat and continue to groom ourselves? You know, um, the afterlife is unknown in a large way. Um, one of the best books I've ever read about heaven that investigates what the future life will be like in eternity in a glorified body is a book with simple name, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's really thick, but it's one of the best books that I've ever read on the subject, and he exhausts every nuance and detail of Scripture about the afterlife. So what we can surmise from Scripture, if God created us to be intelligent beings, if He created us to feel and to think and to create, do you think that all of these things will suddenly cease just because we leave our physical bodies? Our personalities will be intact at death and they go into the afterlife with us. All of the giftings that God has placed in us, the things that we're good at, they will still be intact when we go into the next life, even though our spirits vacate our bodies, who we are and the substance of what we enjoy will still be there minus the physical body. So in eternity, you know, there may be, there may be galaxies that God continues to create. He said, let there be, and it is still becoming. And he may say, I want you to help me with this new galaxy. I want you to help me oversee the climate. I want you to help me oversee the oceans. I want you to help me oversee these group of, of beings that I'm creating. You don't have any idea. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. It's not entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Thinking people, honestly, and here's my investigation, uh, and, and you know it's true, has found that thinking people are, are little interested in heaven because they think and what they've heard is they're going to be, I'm making a joke, sweet, drinking sweet tea, hanging on a hammock, doing nothing all day long or floating on the cloud. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're going to be busy. You're busy here. God never even created you. And this is a challenge to retire. He wants you to refire and stay busy lifelong. People that retire get into trouble. So if you do retire, get busy doing something. You're going to be doing something in eternity. That's the bottom line of that one. Did y'all get that? Anyway, here we are. Oh, here's a good one. Let's see. Uh, my question is multi-part regarding the unforgivable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew 12, 31 through 32 states, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man... Jesus, it shall be forgiven him. Whoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it will not be forgiven, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Why does the scripture indicate forgiveness for everything and, and even sins against Jesus, the Son of Man, but not against the Holy Spirit? That's a, I mean, that's a fair, valid question. What is considered to be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Here are all the questions. Are there examples in scripture? Uh, in the scripture, can a believer unknowingly commit the unpardonable, unforgivable sin? And if so, would they know it immediately? In other words, uh, would there be a witness in their spirit and when they 
Would they effectively disengage from their relationship with the Lord? Or would they just carry on as usual only to find out on the day of judgment? Ananias and Sapphira, thirdly, they say, are they the only ones in the New Testament I can recall of being struck down by the Lord? Did they commit the unforgivable sin? The scripture didn't say they did, just said they lied to the Holy Ghost and, and they dropped dead. It didn't say anything else about them. And you, it's the rest, anything else you think about it is simple conjecture. You just don't know. So what is the unpardonable sin? Well, in the context of the scripture there in Matthew 12, the religious people uh, saw Jesus casting a demonic spirit out of someone and they accused him of casting out the demon spirit by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And, and, and that's when Jesus said, you better watch what you're saying. I just did that by the Holy Ghost. And you just said what I did by the Holy Ghost is of the devil. And he said, that's not unto blasphemy against the Spirit. Say, so why is that such an unpardonable sin? It's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction of sin into the life of a human being. And the scripture says the Spirit will not always strive with man. In, I think it's the book of Genesis. So, um, you know, you're treading on, on dangerous ground to do anything to harm the Holy Spirit and cause him to want to have nothing to do with you. The very desire we have from God for God comes from the Holy Spirit. You know, I think I've lived long enough now and I really can't be the ultimate judge, but I have known people in my life that have zero desire for spiritual reality. They have no desire for anything that I personally love uh, that, that, that has to do with God, the Bible, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And I've often left that person. I can't judge, but I have to question. I wonder what they've done in their life. They have no spiritual cognizance whatsoever. What happened to this person? Uh, so let me summarize by saying a person that blasphemes the Holy Spirit has absolutely no remorse and no desire whatsoever for God because they've removed it from their life by harming, by pushing him away to the degree that he will have nothing to do with them again. I have illustrations. I don't have time to give them. That's a dangerous thing. So for me, I walk on hallowed ground. That's the reason somebody's doing something and somebody says, well, they're doing that of the devil. I said, you, you know, you, you need to be careful with that unless you know that person really, really well. I'm really careful about saying negative things about people in ministry. I'm really careful because I don't want to be, I don't want to do that. And if you did that unconsciously, I think God would understand and have mercy and grace on you. But if you consciously relegated the things of God to the demonic, I think you're bordering on blasphemy. Don't do it. And the ultimate blasphemy is so resisting the Holy Spirit's dealings in your life that you have no desire for God whatsoever. Ever. That is the ultimate sin to lead this life without Jesus in your life and without his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. The very person that gives that to us, his name is Holy Spirit. Don't grieve him. Is that good? Plain enough. Why don't Jews still offer animal sacrifices? Well, there's not a temple. If you go through the Old Testament, they needed the temple. They needed the washings, the ceremonies. They needed priests with robes. And they, need, they had all those rituals to go through. The apparatus is simply not set up. The Jewish temple was destroyed uh, by Titus in A.D. 70. 
and since then has not yet been rebuilt. We do understand, and that's what I've been teaching on in the book of Revelation, that during the time the Antichrist rises to power and makes a peace and affirms a peace agreement with Israel, that part of that agreement will probably be you can rebuild your temple. I've said it again. Let me say it again. I've said it before. It'll probably be an archaic, rustic, simple, very extremely simple temple, not an ornate temple. And, when, and, and the Jews that are not saved, they believe in those animal sacrifices. They don't believe that Jesus is Messiah unless they're Messianic Jews and that they, they've accepted Jesus the Christ that we know and love as their personal savior. But the Hasidic Jew, who is not a Christian, they want to do those animal sacrifices. They've already got the prince ready to make a simple temple. They've already got all of the things necessary to make all of the, uh, all of the utensils necessary for animal sacrifices. The priest's garbs are ready, and they have the priestly lines that are ready. So one day, that will start again. Will that absolve and cleanse their sin? No, only the blood of Jesus can. But God's going to allow them to do that because little bit by little bit, he will coax them to Jesus. And I've been talking about that when I talk about the book of Revelation. Is that good? Uh, everybody good? Let me see. Man, doing all right here. Um, well, here we go. Here's another one. I'm noticing a movement among some Christians who desire to keep and celebrate feasts that God has instructed the Israelites to keep in the Old Testament, like the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. These Christians don't think that it's mandatory to celebrate them, but that God did command the Israelites to keep those days as holy days, and they find them to be of great significance. What is your take on these holy days, and should we be keeping them? Jesus fulfills all of the sacrificial regulations of Old Testament law. And if you go read Ephesians chapter 2, it's very clear that we no longer have to celebrate feasts and days and years the way the Old Testament Jews who practiced Judaism did because all of that is fulfilled in Christ. Now again, there are, there are churches and they like to talk about the feasts and they're going to detail and there are a lot of really great types and shadows about who we are in Christ in the feasts of Israel, and I think it's fine. But to say you have to do it and demand that, that it, it purifies and makes you a little bit better believer by doing it, I think you cross the line to say that. And I don't think that should be said, and it should not be assumed by people that like to, like to pay attention to these things. So, you know, you need to keep them in their place. They have their place. They definitely teach about Jesus. But to say that we have to do them and it makes us a more spiritual believer, I think it's crossing uh, a biblical line that should not be crossed because our sufficiency is in Christ, not Jewish feasts, right? Now here's, a, here's another one. I have seen Christians that God has saved and brought out of paganism. It's a good question. And witchcraft. And due to their knowledge of the occult, they instruct believers to pray against the spiritual warfare of specific demons during specific pagan and demonic holidays. Um, is it necessary to, be, and so I guess they talk about Halloween too. Is it necessary to become so familiar with these pagan holidays for the purpose of praying against the demonic forces that may be stronger during certain times of the year due to witches and Satanists practicing sorcery due to these holidays. So there's no scripture in the Bible. There's no scripture in the Bible that says we're to, to uh, direct our prayers 
against the devil. We're to resist the devil. Whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven is about as close as you can get. We take authority over the devil, but our prayers go to the Father in the name of Jesus. When you're praying in the spirit, you're not praying against demonic force, you're praying to God. And when we pray in the spirit, and when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying to God. And when we do, we create spiritual force, energy, inertia. And when we do that, the forces of the enemy have to back up. We can't see the spiritual realm. There's probably tremendous battles between angels and demon spirits all the time around you. Those old devils that know you and your family and your, and your background, they're wanting to get to you again. And the angels of God may be saying, not today, Bubba, get out of here. And whatever, it's a big, there's a big battle going on. Well, great. You don't have to be involved in that. Just take up the whole armor of God and believe God and, and, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness and, you know, stand your ground in Jesus' name. God will take care of all the other. Is it necessary to do all this? No, absolutely no. Pray and God will show you what you need to do. I think it makes us more enemy conscious than God conscious when we do that, by the way. After the rapture of the church, what will happen to the people left on earth who accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior? Some of them will be martyred from their faith, for their faith. Some of them may die in the horrible natural disasters that occur after the rapture of the church in what the Bible terms the day of the Lord. Many of them will, uh, will become mysterion, will become martyrs for the cause. And uh, so, uh, thank God, if they know Jesus, they go to heaven. But it's a really hellish time after the rapture of the church. And nobody but nobody wants anybody that you know to be a part of that world once the rapture occurs. How many hear me? Anyway. Man, that's a lot. Should I stop? I have one more. Yes, well, I got three more, but I'll do one more. I'll do this one. This is it. When the rapture occurs, what will happen to our physical bodies? This is a valid question. What will happen to our physical bodies? Would our bodies' corpses be left behind after we meet the Lord in the air? Or where will our bodies, or where will our, where our bodies also, or will our bodies also disappear from earth? I think is what they meant. And what do you think uh, will be the general reaction of those left behind who have witnessed the sudden disappearance of millions of people? Uh, what delusion will they believe? So first of all, 1 Corinthians 15, start with verse 51. 1 Thessalonians 4, start with verse 13 to the end of the chapter. And then, believe it or not, Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. And I just want to take my King James Bible out and read what Philippians 3, 21 says about the rapture of the church. Verse 20 says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. When the rapture of the church occurs, the physical body will not be left behind. When the trumpet sounds, 
when the rapture occurs, the Bible is very clear, particularly the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, that the dead in Christ will rise first. Here's what will happen. Their spirits will come from heaven with Jesus and their spirit will go and, and meet their physical body who will, when the trumpet sounds, literally the corporeal or the physical substance of their body comes back together like Jesus' dead body was resurrected when he came out of the grave. Their bodies will come out of the grave, meet their spirits. Their spirits will get back in their bodies. They'll no longer be disembodied spirits. They'll have a flesh and bone body like Jesus had after he was raised from the dead that will have new laws of physics that control it. It'll be able to travel at the speed of thought. It'll be able to appear and disappear at will without going through a door or a window. It's just an amazing body, a body that will be able to eat. So yes, you'll have to groom and dress that physical body. Jesus ate fish and with the disciples, if you remember, as they walked along the road, the road they went by, uh, he broke bread with them. So he ate the bread. So it'll have some kind of a digestive system. So uh, there's a lot that we don't know about that. What we do know, you're not going to leave your body behind at the rapture of the church. It's coming with you. And it'll be translated supernaturally. It won't be a flesh and blood, but a flesh and bone body, which means the breath of God will give us life. I'm not, it, nothing in scripture says you even have to breathe in that realm. Again, you can go through the atmospheric heavens of the earth, the second heavens where the stars and planets are, and then you can go right through heaven in that, in that spirit body that God will give us, that glorified body. It's a body that'll be able to enjoy the presence of God for eternity in heaven. Won't that be awesome? awesome. That's exciting. It makes me want to run around a little bit, but I think I'll... Wait, I might do it anyway. Well, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And thank you for these wonderful people that took time to ask these questions. We'll come back again. I got a few more, but I need to stop. Let the presence of Jesus permeate every person listening online and every person in this room. And Lord, create in us a heart that hungers for spiritual reality. In the name of Jesus.